Well, hello everyone. I'm your host, Cindy Ketzel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. In this podcast, we team up with experts to bring you the best in HR, talent management, and business strategy. We always love hearing from you. So if you do have a recommendation or a specific topic you'd be interested in suggesting, please email us at podcasts at hci.org. All right, you all. So kind of a fun episode today. Fun and as we were talking before recording, a little bit out of my comfort zone. But we are meeting today with our guest, Oscar Trimboli, and I'll tell you more about him in just a moment. But what's been really cool about getting ready to meet with Oscar is he already does this with, I believe, many of his hosts or folks that he's working with. But I had reached out and I said, hey, you know, your topic is all on listening. I want to make sure we're doing something for the audience that really replicates what we're talking about. And so he's obviously heard this question before and had some really great resources. And so he's given me an opportunity to try something new. What's odd about this, you all, you know, just a cool little connection here. You know, we talk about that in our previous podcast. You know, I'm big on growth. I'm big on development, right? And so I think it was Joelle and I, we talked about a growth mindset. So this really targets that idea that we often stay fixed because that's easier for us to maintain and manage, right? But sometimes it's in that growth that we have opportunities to be innovative and try new things and be successful. So here's where I'm going with all this. My tech producer, Ben, had come up with a great idea several months back for a podcast this fall, which included getting audience feedback. And so we've been noodling on some ideas about how to do this. How do I collect input from the audience? What does that look like? You know, this is going to be a change to our normal. What does that look like? So with the opportunity to meet with Oscar and how he sets his hosts up to be able to listen before during and after, and he'll talk more about that. He had some really great instructions out there. So I was able to really follow, again, a little out of my comfort zone, but I was really able to follow the instruction and the guidance that Oscar was able to give me. So listening and following those instructions in order for us to come up with today's recording. So I'm super excited about that, but that is enough about me. And how this also impacts change for you when we try something new. But let me tell you about Oscar. He is a global expert on workplace listening. He has interviewed over 100 of the most diverse workplace listeners, including air traffic controllers, deaf and foreign language interpreters, hostage negotiators, and spies as part of researching world-class listeners. So over 14,000 people have contributed to his research about what gets in their way when it comes to listening. So I thought that was a really awesome little bite there, Oscar, a little bit more about you. So welcome to the show, Oscar. G'day, Cindy. Really looking forward to listening to your questions today. We're so happy to have you with us here today. So as I shared with you all, Oscar set me up for this journey, which has been awesome. So I took to my social media, I took to my emails, and we got some really great questions from our listeners. So we're going to talk through some of these as we go through our conversation today. So 
here's where I wanted to start since we really are digging into listening. When someone, this is from Deb, she is actually a retired but administrative assistant and has been for a lot of years. So working with a lot of people in offices. So when someone is listening, but not hearing you or understanding, what's a good way to say you're not listening to me? Thanks, Deb, for your question. A common question for employees and a common question for leaders as well. When it comes to this particular question, the reason people don't understand is they don't have any compass settings for the conversation. And when you think about listening, think about carrying a compass, not GPS coordinates, not turn by turn, but the general direction we're heading in. One question that we all should ask either before the conversation commences or right at the beginning of the conversation is to simply ask what would make this a great conversation. Now, it's important not to ask this question, what would make it a great conversation for you? Because the speaker in that case will get quite self-absorbed. Now, I'm going to step us through, say, a one-hour conversation, but you can apply these percentages as easily with a 30-minute meeting or any kind of conversational length. When you ask that question, what will make this a great conversation for you, they respond with their answer. You, as the person who's asked that question, should also respond either, that would be great for me, and... I would like to achieve this as well. Now, this sets up a north setting on our compass. So we both know the direction we're heading in together because there's always a third position in every conversation. That third position is the dialogue. And the dialogue is where we are heard or understood in your question, Deb. Each 15 minutes in a one-hour meeting, Deb, you should check in with that person and simply say, Hey, at the beginning of this conversation, you said this would be a good conversation. How are we tracking? It also gives you the opportunity to go, and I said this, and I think we may be a little off track. Now, one of the reasons we ask this question right up front, the North Star that keeps us both going in the same direction, A, is to signal listening. The mere fact that you remembered what they said at the beginning of the meeting, will change the way they communicate the idea. The other way I would say is, unsurprisingly, there is misunderstanding in a lot of conversation. If you want to understand what they have heard, ask them this simple question. If you were to summarise what I said in a sentence, how would you do that? If you were to summarize what I said as the subject line in an email, how would you summarize it? Or if you were to summarize this for our manager or a customer or a regulator or a competitor or a supplier, it doesn't matter who it is, just get them to one sentence. You will hear what they've heard and that gives you the opportunity to have a discussion now about what wasn't heard. Because when we understand the neuroscience of listening, the most important thing to listen to is not what's said, it's to listen to what's not said. So Deb, you can either use the listening compass 
or use the summary question that simply says, if you were to summarize this issue, my requirements in a sentence, how would you do that? And then you can have a discussion about that. Cindy, which one of those two might you pick if you were Deb? I liked the summary piece of that. And you want to know why? Because I think that's something that, first of all, we talk about that in one of our HCI classes as part of our questioning strategy. How do you close out that conversation? And I always say, you know, check for understanding, make sure you're on the same page. An easy way to do that is blah, 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 right? Putting in some questions at the end. So I think for me, like, my natural tendency would be to incorporate that, make sure if I'm the receiver that I'm hearing what that person has said and then vice versa. Yeah, what we hear there is one of the biggest costs of not listening. You hear what you want to hear. The other party doesn't confirm it. You come back next week and they say, well, I've delivered this for you. And they go, no, 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 that's not what I asked for. And then we have a whole lot of rework to do. And that's the hidden cost of not listening. Absolutely. A hundred. And I think, you know, we've talked about, you know, how this impacts us and our organizations, but I just think in relationships, you know, professional relationships, personal relationships, family relationships, it's such a good tool, those steps that you shared for us to use to just better conversation or to your point, better listening. Right? We're improving <laughs> our listening. Yeah, well, good listeners will notice what people say, but great listeners create a container in which the speaker will speak completely differently about the topic. They'll speak more about what they think and what they mean rather than what they say the first time. A lot of people, their thinking is like a deck of cards that's all jumbled up and unshuffled. And if you create a space, it will allow them to get the cards out in sequence. So it makes sense to both of us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big visual person to Oscar, so sometimes in those instances, I'm wanting to draw it out, you know, or whiteboard it, or let's both be visually looking at, you know, the pieces of this conversation as we're talking through it too. Now, Cindy, you're a really big visual person, but you can't see me right now. I cannot. Is that helpful for your listening or is it detracting from your listening? That's a really great question. I think I've done okay. I mean, I think I do well, What I've had to learn to do, Oscar, is I always, and I say this on all my episodes, I'm taking notes as other people are talking because that puts it in a visual space for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And a lot of us don't realize that we are either primary visual listeners first, then auditory, or auditory first and visual second. And this is why it's critical that if you're communicating that you don't know the person, you need to be able to create opportunities for them to access it both visually through metaphors, if it's audio only, or if it's visual, give some space and use a pause to allow the auditory to catch up and make sense of it as well. Yeah, it's great information. Yeah, you're helping redefine our podcast. (laughs) You never know. We might be moving into this style. I love it. I love it. Again, you all, I'm so grateful for folks who sent in some wonderful questions. And this one came through at the latest, almost at the latest, at the ninth hour. 
And I thought, ooh, this is really interesting because I think there's a lot of neurodiverse folks in our workforce and there's just some attention being paid now. So here was the question Gray sent in. Grace asks, what can someone do to listen better if they naturally struggle with attentional difficulties or other struggles with executive functioning? So I thought that was a really interesting one. Thanks, Grace. More common question than most people realize. When it comes to our attention, we can give attention, we can pay attention, and some of us struggle with the length in which we can hold our attention. Now, when I spoke to Christopher about this, who is somebody who is neurodivergent, he gave a beautiful example. He was a summer camp leader, and his camp owner would tell stories that would go on and on and on, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. And eventually Christopher realized that after 90 seconds, he was shutting down. His attention was completely diverted somewhere else. But Christopher had the consciousness to say to the camp owner, if you could make those stories into 90 seconds to two minutes, I can make sense of them and act on them. But once those stories go longer, my attention wanders. I think it would create a more productive communications between the two of us if you were aware of my preferences. Now, unfortunately, most people who are neurotypical don't have the consciousness or awareness to notice when they're telling a story, providing instructions, or being part of a conversation if the other person drifts out very quickly. So when it comes to our listening, it's as important to describe how to communicate as the content of our communication as well. So with Christopher's example, with a simple this is how you can communicate effectively with me. And together we can be more productive together. Unfortunately, in our workplace, the burden of responsibility is on the neurodivergent person to express their communication preferences as early as possible. I want to also talk about the reverse of this too, Grace. In some neurodivergent communities, one of the things they struggle with is maintaining consistent eye contact during a dialogue. And I was working with a chair of a board and they brought me in because one of the participants, a very bright woman, was not a team player. And if you could see that, that's in air quotes. And they asked me to stay in for the whole day of the board meeting and from 9 till 11 was the first session before they broke for a break. And I noticed that this person who I was asked to observe was paying enormous attention, taking great notes, but their eye gaze was always down onto the paper and the notes they were taking. They weren't engaging with the visuals in the room. At the break, I asked her, could you tell me how you concentrate? And she simply said to me, I concentrate by listening carefully. I take notes and occasionally I might need to look at a graph that's being presented. Now, this was a board of actuaries who were dealing with very complex issues around pricing for global climate change. 
I said, could you explain that to the group when you go back? And she went back at the end of the break and said to the group, I concentrate best by keeping my gaze down or on the floor and not making eye contact. So whether your attention is easily distracted or in this case, where your eye gaze is down, communicate to the group about your communication preference. Now, what happened next was you could hear the rest of the group verbally exhale. It was like, and then at the lunch break, I spoke to the chair and I said to the chair, we need to talk about your unconscious bias in communication style because there was absolutely nothing wrong with the way your person that you asked me to point out, they were listening very carefully. They just concentrated in a different way. And unfortunately, the burden of responsibility for neurodivergent people is on them in the workplace to disclose it. If they disclose it, the result is the speakers will adjust their speaking style so you can maintain your attention, Grace. I hope that helps. That's a really thorough response. And thank you for sharing that story and, you know, continuously repeating that folks that have preferences for conversation, you know, it's good to bring that up early. But I'm thinking about the story about the board members and your comment that you could see the other board members exhaled. Is part of that around what they were perceiving was happening, do you suppose? Yeah, look, in the West, eye contact is one of the signals of listening. Not all cultures is direct eye contact a signal of listening. In the West, in Western English-speaking places, particularly in North America, this is an example of where your attention is fixed. And you make an assumption when you look at somebody, if they're not looking at you for an extended period of time, where is their attention? (laughs) It's like when it comes to that group, this woman was a very accomplished actuary, somebody who deals with complexity around math, around complexity with people, human systems, environmental systems, distilling them into formulas and ways to express them in a way that other people can make sense of that. The other thing she was would be labelled as an introvert. And I think labels are really good on food jars and pharmaceuticals. They're not good on people. You can label people's behaviour, but don't label the people. Don't judge them too quickly. Introverts synthesise and listen as a way of processing and thinking and perspective making in their world, whereas extroverts verbalise to think and express their ideas in the world. Neither is correct or incorrect. We just need to be conscious that people have preferences. Now, for many of us, we can't because we're too busy looking at the notification on our watch, on our laptop, on our tablet, on our computer. We're not even conscious of what's going on in the room because our attention is completely somewhere else. So when it comes to listening, the biggest distinction I can make for everybody is stop focusing on the speaker as the place you start your listening. Start listening to yourself first. Shut down the browser tabs in your own mind so you can create a space to listen to somebody else. 
in our research, we know that the biggest thing that gets in the way of people's listening, external distractions, the biggest one of those are any kind of electronic notifications, and internal distractions, not processing the last meeting or being in the current meeting and trying to process the next meeting or anticipating a vacation or anything else. So one of the things I would say to us all is how conscious are you of how many browser tabs you've got open right now while you're listening to Cindy and I, and what are your rituals to shut them down? Great response. And it's interesting too, because one of my preparation techniques is to shut everything down except for where we're recording and except for anything, you know, that you and I maybe wanted to touch on, or, you know, if I'm reading anything about you and you're right, it's such a benefit to be able to shut those tabs down in your mind. If I can offer a couple of really simple things that everyone can do. Tip number one, don't start the meeting at the top of the hour. Now, Cindy, you're going to share a dirty little secret with everybody. We started this meeting at roughly what time? Were we at 3.35? Well, you got a meeting request that said 3.35. I loved it. Did you think it was a mistake? No, I knew what was going on. No, I loved it. I loved it. So the first thing you can do as a host, and you can control this if you're hosting a meeting, you can't control it if you're being invited by somebody else, start a one-hour meeting five after the hour and finish a five to the hour. Therefore, your one-hour meeting becomes a 50-minute meeting. Now, this shows respect. It shows humility. It shows professionalism to everybody in the meeting because this is what typically happens if you book a meeting at the top of the hour. Oh, Cindy, sorry I'm late. I just had to finish the last meeting and I was just running a little bit over time. So I'm here now and let's get started. Now, they arrive at three minutes past, four minutes past, five minutes past. It doesn't matter. Physically, they're present in your meeting, but mentally, they don't arrive till seven after, eight after, nine after the hour. Oh, when their mind is caught up to the focus of the time that we're spending together. Correct. So if you started at five after the hour, the response you'll get is, Cindy, I so look forward to your meetings. I've had time to get a glass of water. Tip number two, drink a glass of water before you get into a conversation. I've had time to visit the bathroom. I've had time to collect my thoughts for this conversation. Now, they're still arriving at five after the hour, but they're arriving in a completely different state. Their mindset is ready for the conversation. They look forward to it. They don't feel rushed. And when they don't feel rushed, the way they express an idea is completely different to when they are rushed. Again, back to that card analogy, would you rather have somebody just throw a deck of cards at you or would you like to throw them to you in sequence? So tip one, start them in at five minutes after the hour if it's a half hour meeting and finish it and make it a 20 minute meeting. You have to give them time. And this is how you can create some systemic change in your organization. If you give them five minutes at the end of your meeting and they go into a meeting that somebody else has created at the top of the hour, they're going to be in a better state to do this. So you are role modeling a big systemic impact by doing this. Tip number one, five minutes after the hour. Tip number two, drink a glass of water before the meeting and drink a glass of water every 30 minutes in a meeting. This sends a signal to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the nervous system around your heart and your lungs to protect you as a human. 
It's literally what keeps you alive. And it says, relax, everything's okay. So if you get distracted during a conversation, which you will inevitably do, if you want to shut down some browser tabs, just drink a glass of water. And then finally, tip number three, be conscious of your breathing. Before you go into the conversation, close your eyes if you can and take three deep breaths in through the nose, down to the bottom of your lungs and your diaphragm and out through your mouth. Whether you're an Olympic athlete, an opera singer or a Navy SEAL, in high performance situations, they are all very deliberate in the way they breathe for high performance. Now, a bonus, if you've got a little bit of extra time, here's my bonus tip for you. If you want to recharge your listening battery, because most of us go into a conversation with our listening battery around orange or red, and we want to recharge it to green as quickly as possible, play some music. Just two minutes of music will recharge your listening battery. So there's some practical tips to help you shut down the browser tabs and get into the conversation. Yep. So on the fives, that's what I'm calling it on the fives, but making it 50 minutes of that meeting, drinking the glass of water, paying attention to your breathing, and then that listening for two minutes. All easy to do. Everything I'm going to say is easy to do, but it's difficult to practice consistently. Thank you. Thank you for saying you are right. That is a better way to say it. Yes. Easy to, but we need the access, right? It needs to be easy for us to try it, but you are right. We need to actually put it into motion. I agree. Can I give you a tip to sustain that change? Now, working with the Deep Listening Ambassador community, a group of people who are committed to making workplaces better listening environments tips I hear back from them to how they sustain this change. They wear jewellery or their watch on the non-preferred hand in the period of time they're trying to improve their listening. And these physical changes are simple signals and reminders to them when they go back to their old habits to go, oh, I went to look at my watch, but it was on the other hand. Oh, yes, of course, that's a reminder. Time for a glass of water take a deep breath. And the other one, if your watch is your phone and you don't wear any jewellery, change the photo or the lock screen to some kind of a reminder for a period of 21 days to 90 days to help you sustain that change as well. That's wonderful. Yeah, because we're all wearing our technology right on our wrists now. <laughs> constantly getting information. I wanted to try to get this question in here. It's one of our colleagues at HCI. And so I thought it would be a good one, you know, as we all work with people across the country and the world in different human capital professions. So I thought this was really interesting to tie back as I think it's uh, useful for in any conversation, but the balance between how much we talk and listen in a typical conversation. So that came in from Phil. So any thoughts around that? So that balance between talking and listening and what that balance is in a conversation. Thanks for the question, Phil. And if Phil was next to us right now, Cindy, I'd ask a clarifying question. But given I can't, I will use an assumption and help Phil to think about this through multiple contexts. Now, listening is situational, relational, and contextual. What does that mean? It means you'll listen differently to a motor mechanic than you will to your mother. It means you'll listen differently to a school principal than a police officer. It means you'll listen differently to your manager than you will to a peer, 
or a subordinate. You'll listen differently to a customer than you will to a supplier. You'll listen differently at the beginning of a relationship than you will in the middle. You'll listen differently at the beginning of a project than you will at the end of the project, for example. So being conscious that listening is situational, relational, and contextual, the speak-to-listen ratio varies dramatically depending on your role in the dialogue and whether it's group or individual. I'm going to use a simple workplace project as a way for us to think that through. At the beginning of the project, we're likely to be listening more to somebody who's setting the scene for us. During a one-hour meeting that we know we've just made into a 50-minute meeting, at the beginning of that conversation, somebody's probably speaking a lot longer than might be normal because they're doing the setup the why of the project, the how of the project, the what of the project, the who of the project, the when of the project, the what if of the project. Now, in that case, you're going to be doing a lot more listening than speaking if you're not the person setting up the project. In the middle third of the dialogue, you may be asking a whole group of questions to the speaker and providing your perspective on that. So there isn't a golden ratio for us to think about 50% speaking, 50% listening. How do we ascertain what the right ratio is for the conversation? Ask the question at the beginning, what would make this a great conversation? And because you're using that to check in every 15 minutes, it's a circuit breaker if somebody's speaking way too much and you just simply check in. Please don't interrupt somebody mid-sentence, but it's okay to interrupt and still be listening. Just wait till they've completed their thought or their sentence and just say, Cindy, at the beginning, you said this would make it a great conversation. How are we tracking? And the important follow-up question to that is, given the balance of our time, how should we spend it? That's the second part of it. And this will continuously calibrate how we have the conversation so there is the appropriate balance of speaking to listening in a conversation because we have the compass setting for the conversation to keep us on track, not one party or the other dominating the dialogue. Because, Phil, here's the bad news for you. Sometimes you're the person who speaks way too much. Ooh, I like that. That question of what would make this a great conversation, you shared that when I asked the very first question from Deb, you'd walk through those steps. So am I right to assume, speaking of assumptions, am I right to assume that that could be a potential game changer for that two-way conversation or regularly if you started to utilize that as part of that launching of that conversation? regardless of what the conversation is about. One of the deep listening ambassadors in the United Kingdom, she is running a very large division of a pharmaceutical recruitment company. She works in the biosciences. And Emma took this question to heart and used it consistently 
and left me a message and just said, Oscar, I cannot believe what a game changer this question has been, not just for my client conversations, but also for my staff conversations. How do I know it's been a game changer? My staff are now using those questions with their clients and with each other. Oscar, you promise that meetings are shorter when you listen well because you listen to what people think and mean rather than what they say. And I can attest that this has been a huge game changer for me. The commercial impact for Emma has been staggering, but the relationship impact is that she says that her clients are referring her in a completely different way now because in the past they represent her because you need to work with Emma, she's got great industry contacts. Now they say, wow, Emma's got great industry contacts, but she gets stuff out of you that you didn't even realize you wanted to say. That was exactly the term, the game changer. That was my exact term. I get that just in those few examples that you've now given. I can see where that can really hone our conversation. So that's a wonderful tip. Thank you. Well, we are getting ready to wrap up here, Oscar. So anything else before I close us out? Look, if you're navigating huge change, and change programs in your organization. One of the things you do is you're very fixated and very focused on the future. Listen carefully to the past before you take your employees into a future that's unknown to them. There is a human ritual that's a funeral, and the funeral is for those who've passed as well as the living. Too many of you are rushing your change initiatives without having a funeral for the past. And in the past, you want to acknowledge and leave behind and bury what's not useful and bring forward what's a legacy as well. My invitation to you is when you're driving big change initiatives, listening happens before, during and after the change. You will get more engagement from people if you acknowledge the past and their contribution to it rather than being absolutely obsessed and fixated about the future change, which nobody's really bought into because they've contributed huge effort, huge experience, huge discretionary time away from their family in the past. If you don't acknowledge the past, your change initiatives are set to fail for the future. So please take the time to listen to the backstory as much in your change initiative as you do on the change you're trying to implement. And you'll have a very engaged group of people who believe that no matter what the change is, you will honor their part in it. Yeah, thank you, Oscar. That really echoes quite a bit of our certification class that we teach on change management. That You can see themes of that probably not as eloquently said as you just did, but you can see themes of that as we go through the class. So a great way for us to wrap up here. All right. Well, Nine to Thrive listeners, here we are. First and foremost, of course, thank you to Oscar Trimboli for shaking up our world today a little bit or my world a little bit today. And hopefully that is a positive outcome for you all as listeners. Next, be sure to shoot us a quick email, podcasts at hci.org, if you do have any thoughts for topics or recommendations for guests. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. 
If you are listening on the Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating. Your rating helps other professionals and talent-minded people discover our program. For Nine to Thrive HR and all of us here at HCI, we appreciate you for tuning in. Make it a great day, everyone.